Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads, generally, for most people, are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hello and welcome to Second Chance, a podcast that explores the notion of second chance. What is a second chance? Who deserves a second chance? And who decides whether someone is worthy of a second chance? My name is Raphael Rowe and in this episode I'll be joined by Cookie whose real identity I cannot disclose. Now she served 13 years in prison for killing her 12 weeks old baby boy. She maintains she is a victim of a gross miscarriage of justice and is determined to tell her side of the story. But before that I just wanted to acknowledge String Boutique Management Consultancy who has kindly sponsored this episode. Cookie, that's how I'm going to refer to you because I like the idea of calling you Cookie. Yeah. Can you tell me, in your own words, the crime that you were arrested, charged and eventually convicted and sentenced to prison for? The youngest of my three children, 12 weeks old boy, he went to sleep and didn't wake up. I was charged and convicted of murder. What did they say you did? It's alleged that I smothered him. As in suffocation? Yes, yes. When you were first arrested, and I know the background to your case, and obviously I don't want to go into too much detail because it it, it must be quite traumatic having to relive these moments all the time. But at the time that you you were first arrested, just talk me through what went on why the police decided to level charges against you well there were a number of post-mortems after my son died and it was suspected as cop death or unascertained which basically means they can't decide they're not sure and then it went to the coroner's court and the police asked for a further post-mortem the coroner said no so the police asked for a paper review, academic review. So a further pathologist, paediatric pathologist, read all of the previous reports, post-mortem reports, 
and he came to the decision that it was murder, that it was asphyxiation, smothering. And this happened before you were even charged. So these tests were being carried out whilst you were what, under suspicion? My son died beginning of August and I wasn't actually charged until the October. So there was a few months and were you held on remand, suspected of being involved or were you not even a suspect? The day my son died, I was taken from the hospital to a police station and interviewed there. Um, and then I was allowed to leave there with my aunt and go and stop at my cousin's. I wasn't allowed to return to my house. My other two children were taken to a police station and from there they were put into temporary foster care. How old were your other two children at the time? They would have been two and four. So you had a two-year-old, a four-year-old and a 12-week-old baby who had just died? Yeah. What do you say happened? I believe that my son was unwell. Um, the pathologist found that my son, in his opinion, had old blood in his lungs. And that pathologist said that I had previously attempted to harm my son through smothering. And that two days later, I killed him through smothering. I know that that's not true. I know that two days before my son died, I phoned NHS Direct and told them he was unwell. They felt he wasn't. Did, did, did they examine him? Did you take him in for examination? Was that necessary? No, it wasn't needed. He had... I've got other children. I know all the routine tests you do with an unwell child. I checked nappies. I checked temperature. I checked his body for rashes and any sign of injury. Um, I checked whether he was responding to my voice, um, whether he had sensation in his hands and feet by tickling. I monitored his feeding. Um, I even checked his soft spot on his skull because he's a baby. So I, I was checking everything. And um, he was bringing up a green mucus um, that filled my hand like overboiled cabbage. And he was bringing up what to this day I maintain was a transparent brown fluid. Um, because he had no other symptoms, NHS Direct felt he just had a cold. And I trusted them because I was an idiot. You probably do what any other parent did, um, or you did what any other parent would have done, which is take the advice from the professionals at the other end of the phone. We do it in our daily lives all the time. If they say, okay, monitor the symptoms, see what happens in a few days. If it's not improved, give us a call back, take a couple of paracetamol or whatever. But that didn't happen in this case. Two days later, your son was dead. The next day he was at, his, at my sister's and they say he was okay. The following day, he was a bit tired, but I assumed that was because he'd had a busy day the day before. Um, that afternoon, I fed him on my lap, he went to sleep and I put him in his push chair, got the other two ready and we went out to the shop, um, came back and it was a short while later, I left my son in his push chair in the back garden because it was sunny and he was asleep, my back garden's secure, so I took the other two in to get them settled. Then I went to get my baby and um, he'd had a nosebleed. And 
that's you try to explain it to yourself that maybe it's because he's in in the sun maybe it's because he's got the condition you had as a child where you were prone to nosebleeds you know but you get straight on the phone asking for help and at the same time as you're doing that you're trying to make sure the other two aren't panicking and getting hysterical because it's a whole new situation to them as well my two-year-old at that age was very much a mummy's boy so in the house he was constantly with me so i've got him right next to me while i'm trying to deal with my baby without scaring the two-year-old it's but you're so frantic to find out what is wrong and how you can put it right and what your child needs and the police paramedics came um they tried recess put my son into an ambulance and took him to the hospital because i was trying to calm the other two i went to the ambulance in a police car behind the ambulance that's how i got to the hospital and was your son still alive when he arrived at the hospital or had he already passed they say that he'd already died I'm convinced to this day that when I got him out of his pushchair, when I first saw the nosebleed, I was too scared to get him out of the pushchair in case I made it worse. So I phoned NHS Direct. They've asked me if I can wake him. So I've tried that, no response. They've asked me if I can feel a pulse. And at first I couldn't. But to this day, I am convinced I found a weak pulse. But they say no. They say he was dead. During the period that he was taken to the hospital and the police carried out a number of, I I suspect, investigations, including commissioning these pathologists to carry out the test, there was a period of time between that August and October when they eventually came and arrested you for, for the death of your son. What was that like? Because I suspect you were dealing with many different things as well as kind of controlling and looking after the two kids that you were with the day my son died the other two were taken off me and were not returned to me by social services well i'd assumed that they would go to my mother who lived just down the road had regular contact with the children had space for them to live comfortably with her um but the day my son died my mum had a seizure so it was deemed that she wasn't well enough to have the children Um, Her health deteriorated that day. Um, So the children went into foster care while their dad applied to have them. And then they went to live in Sussex with him. What were you, when the police came and arrested you in October, what what were you actually charged with? Now, I know that you've talked about, you know, suffocation. Is that asphyxiation? What are they saying you actually did? Strangled your child? Put a pillow over his head? What are they saying you actually physically done to murder your own child? They charged me with murder. They cannot specify how they believe I asphyxiated him. My son had, when somebody is deprived of oxygen, they get burst vessels on their cheeks and in their eyes and all of that kind of thing. My son had none of that. He had no injury to his neck, which you would get from strangulation. And he had no fibers in his nose or mouth, which you would get from smothering with a pillow, for example. He had none of those but they still maintain that I asphyxiated him. I deprived him of oxygen. And how did that play out 
at the trial because there eventually became a, a time where you were put on trial and this evidence was obviously examined and, and gone through at the trial. To an extent in court, that's overlooked. The method of the alleged crime, that's overlooked in my case. Um, it was focusing more on medical symptoms such as the nosebleed because in a baby of 12 weeks and a spontaneous nosebleed is so rare and then the old blood in the lungs again it is a possible indication of previous smothering but it's not the only thing that causes old blood in the lungs but that's the one they focused on they didn't focus on the specifics of how how long was your trial and what happened at the end? Um, my trial was two weeks. Um, I was on bail, so I went into court every day. Um, it was decided... I had an appropriate adult because it was felt... At the time my son died, I was under a mental health team and the police were too nervous or apprehensive to interview me on my own that day. So my aunt was there, she was appointed my appropriate adult. A while later, it was decided I didn't need an appropriate adult, but because of my mother's ill health and complications there, my family asked me to keep my aunt involved. So I did, because it made things easier for my family. Um, so she decided with my legal team that I should not give evidence because of my health. Um, but obviously that's not explained in a court to a jury that there are medical reasons you're not giving evidence. They just get told you're not giving evidence. They don't get told the reasons behind that. And do you think that went against you then? Oh, definitely. Absolutely, 100%. I believe that went against me. Why? Because that jury had been listening for two weeks to one step removed information about my son. They didn't get to hear from anyone that knew and loved him. They didn't get to hear my memories of the day. And I think that just makes, if you get to hear from the accused, I just think it gives you a different perspective, a more human perspective. What was your state of mind at the time? Because you, 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 you know, notwithstanding the fact that you are standing in the, the doc accused of the murder of your child, you've had to deal with the period up until the trial, um, the loss of your other two kids, this, this cloud over your head being accused of, of killing another one of your children. Um, but, but what state of mind were you in? What sort of a person were you at the time? And let me ask, were you on drugs? I mean, whether it was medication to placate you from the trauma of what was going on? Were you a drinker? I mean, what was Cookie like during this period? Thankfully, I have never and never will use illegal drugs. I'm not a drinker, um, but I was on antidepressants. I've been on antidepressants on and off for most of my life anyway, so that's no big major thing for me. But when you watch television and you watch all these crime dramas and all of that, when somebody in the family dies, you have a police liaison officer, a family liaison officer, who keeps you informed of things and checks how you're doing and 
puts you in touch with support agencies and groups and all of that, you don't get that in real life. <laughs> it doesn't happen. Nobody is keeping an eye on you to make sure you're okay. You have to try and fit that into everything else you've got to try and manage. And then there were so many things going on then as well with my other children, as well as my son who had died. And you have to get your head around the fact that while you're sitting at home waiting for your trial, there were complete strangers cutting up your son and taking parts of him for further tests. And that's an image you have to live with every single day. And even when you've had the trial and you've been convicted and you've done your time in prison and you're released, you still have that image. It will never go. I know that people who don't care about my son, they don't care about his brother and sister, they have cut up my, my baby looking for answers and they've still managed to get the wrong answer. So why did they do it? That's hard. And you do live with that. You live with that when you're going through the run-up to your trial. You're thinking, well, they've done all these tests. Surely they know what the answer is. Surely the first day of my trial, they're going to stand up and say, well, actually, we're not charging you with murder because we finally found the answers we were looking for. And that doesn't happen. And so you're going through your trial with all these questions. What didn't they test for? What haven't they found? What have they overlooked? What more information do they need from me? Are there any tests I can have to help them find the answer for my son? If it is something that's not just a bug, if it's something genetic, are my other children affected? Because you've got no answer, you've got a million questions. Was you satisfied with the representation you got from your legal team because these are the answers or these are people that can provide you with at least some of the answers during that time were they doing that at the time i was satisfied with them i felt quite comfortable and confident with them since then as more information has come to light i realize that that legal team were not appropriate for my case they allowed my appropriate adult far more power than legally she was entitled to. Sounds to me like you've fallen out with your, your auntie who was by your side at the point. I don't have contact with any of my family now. My mother died. My mum collapsed the day that my son, was di my son died and was, she was diagnosed with stress-induced epilepsy. So my family asked me not to discuss my case with her and to keep my aunt involved so that I could discuss everything with my aunt and my mum would be at peace with that. And then a couple of months before my conviction, it was found that my mum had a cancerous brain tumour and it was too late to operate. So she actually died a couple of months before my conviction. Uh, my dad died a year after. Um, my sisters, they have lives and children of their own. They don't need to be dragged down by the weight of what I'm dealing with. Were they supportive though, your family? I mean, even from a distance or, or were they themselves shocked by everything that was going on, even questioning your um, guilt? Everyone questions your guilt when you have mental health issues. It's, like I say, I've had mental health issues most of my life. Um, nothing too severe, I mean, I'm not schizophrenic or anything like that, but I do have problems with depression and anxiety, have done since I was a child. Um, 
And so, yes, they do want, they did wonder whether maybe I'd had a bad day. And they did ask. Which is why at the time of my trial, I, I was quite open with my sisters and said, look, if you have any questions at all, ask. You can ask my solicitor, you can talk it through with my aunt. You know, I was very open about everything so that if they had questions, they might be able to find the answers to put their minds at ease. But they've gone on to have children and the children don't need an aunt that's in prison. They don't need all of that hanging over them and weighing them down as well. Let's talk about the moment you were convicted and, and sent to prison. Just tell me what happened. So on the day that the, I suspect it was a jury that found you guilty and then the judge sentenced you. Tell me about that. Again, you see all these TV programmes and even documentaries where when somebody's found guilty and sentenced to life, they break down in tears. I didn't. I don't know whether that was shock or something else, but they gave me the life sentence and I passed my handbag to my aunt because that had all my ID and my keys and everything in it, gave that to my aunt and I went to the cells below the court, completely calm. My legal team came down to talk to me and at that point my solicitor actually thought I hadn't realised what had happened in the courtroom, that it just hadn't registered. And I told her, you know, getting angry, upset, tearful is not going to help me deal with what I need to deal with. But people would interpret that, and I suspect that they did, as cold, uncaring, calculated. Yes, I know they do. In the courtroom, for the two weeks I was in there, um, the prosecution, on one of their tables at the back, they had boxes of paperwork and they positioned a picture of my son's eyeballs so that I could see it. I spoke to my legal team. They had a word with the prosecution to ask them if they would mind moving it. So they made it more obvious. If I had broken down in that courtroom, I wouldn't have been able to hear anything that was being said. I would have fallen apart. So I learned very quickly, you put up a wall. You can't let yourself cry because if you're crying, you can't do things like this. You can't contact legal teams and experts and say, what's your opinion? Can you help? What do I do next? If you're so caught up in grief, you can't do what you need to do for your son. I, I can relate to that. And, and I think it's so important that you've said that because most people won't. I do, but I know most people won't understand how people react in that situation, regardless of of your connection to the case itself. In this case, your, your son's death. They expect the expected. What you expect is not necessarily, as you've just said, what, what, what happened. So I can relate to that. And I'm glad you've said it because it is important that people digest and understand that, um, even though they question it. You've been convicted and sentenced to life imprisonment. Um, talk me through the first few years of what that was like, because when when I was in prison and men who came into prison convicted of the, the murder or death of a child, they were treated worse than anything. Is that experience the same in a woman's prison? 
Life can be difficult, yes. Um, when I was convicted, I spent a couple of weeks in a local prison that wasn't set up for life. I was convicted to life, so I was classed as a lifer. The local prison wasn't set up to manage lifers. So they put me onto a main wing, and obviously it's in the local area. People have already heard my name on the news. They've seen my case on the news. So the first thing that night, the women are banging on the wall, shouting through doors, shouting through windows, calling me all kinds of names, threatening me with all kinds of stuff. Um, during the night, the prison officers came and moved me off the wing because they felt it wasn't safe in the morning. They didn't want me unlocked with everybody else. So they moved me to the segregation, which is a small unit with only a couple of rooms in it, um, a couple of cells, and you don't mix down there. You have your meals separately and all of that kind of thing. So they moved me down there for my own safety. And then I got moved to a lifer prison. And for my first six months there, I was getting dirty mops pushed in my face. I was getting hit around the back of my head with metal flasks, plates, books. Um, I had one girl, you didn't have kettles in prisons back then. You had a big urn in the corridor where you could go and fill your flask up with hot water. And I had a girl try incredibly hard to put my head under that. Um, she wanted to scold you with the hot water. Oh, yes. I had another girl um, try to set fire to me with a lighter, but I turned round in time. Um, one, of the girl, I, one of the girls, I heard her talking about throwing boiling hot water and sugar at me because that burns differently to just hot water. I had one girl go into my room and for reasons I'm not entirely sure of, she pulled down the photographs of my other children and tore them up. They're the only pictures I had of my children. She took the only photograph I, I had of my baby and screwed it up. And I know it's only a photograph and my son is in my head and my heart, but sometimes you still need a photo to remind yourself that you were there with him. I mean, you, you talk about the women trying to cause you all sorts of damage um, and injuries physically. Did you have to take on a persona where you had to physically fight back to protect yourself? I will never do that. Never. It's not in my character. It is not something I agree with. I will not raise my voice or my hand to another person. The first time I got assaulted in prison, um, a girl in front of me turned around smacked me straight in the face with her fist. I stood there, didn't raise my voice, didn't put my hand up. She did it again. And it was after the second hit, when I've stood there and done nothing, that the staff have intervened. They've come and asked me if I want to press charges against her. No, I don't. My son is dead. There is nothing anyone else can do to hurt me. I've got the biggest hurt there is. You can call me any name you like. I don't care. I'm probably calling myself worse because a mum's role is to protect their child and keep them safe. And for whatever reason, my son died. I hate myself for listening to the NHS. The NHS told me he was okay. He wasn't, I shouldn't have listened. And I have to live with that. So if they want to call me names, fine. If they want to hit me, fine. My son is dead, you can't hurt me anymore. What did you do while you were in prison to, to get your voice heard? that you had been 
wrongly convicted, that you hadn't done what they said you had done, what you had been convicted of. Because you talk about being in prison the first few weeks in segregation and a few months, but you went on to spend quite a long time in prison, didn't you? A very long time in prison. Yes, I did. I I was in there for quite some time. And within the prison system, I didn't stand from the rooftop shouting about my innocence because that's not going to help anyone. Um... And to some extent, it winds people up. Bizarrely, in the female estate, I found that if you had harmed a child and you admitted guilt, you were treated better than those who maintained innocence, which is odd. Um, I contacted solicitors to see who would help me with finding out why my son died. That's what I did. And... I tried to use my time productively because otherwise I would sit and fret and worry and deteriorate. You have to keep your mind active so you can deal with the legal position, with finding the answers, with knowing what to do next. So you can't allow yourself to go into a stupor of watching TV and eating junk food or getting caught up in the drug culture in prison. You have to keep yourself mentally awake mentally alive so I studied but even that as somebody who maintains innocence for what I was accused of even that's not easy I was banned from studying law in prison but yet other lifers who admitted guilt were allowed to do law it's it is what it is you take it on the chin and you find something else and each time they say no to you and not to somebody else, you've got options of how you respond to that. You can get frustrated and smash everything in your room. You can hurl abuse at people. You can write out complaint forms to the governor. It's not worth it. It's not worth it. You're using energy negatively that you don't have spare. So you have to find a way to say, OK, say no to that one. I'll try something else. So you look for another course. You look for another job within the system. You look for another option of how to manage. It's just how it is. Did you did you have to spend most of your time in segregation, either um, willingly or because the prison officers decided that it was in your best interest, it was safer? Actually, I didn't spend that long on my own at all. I was... I suppose in some ways I was fortunate. In the female estate, they don't have a vulnerable prisoner unit like they do in male estate. So people such as myself and what I was accused of, we don't have the option of going to a vulnerable prisoner unit. We have to be put in with the main location, the main population. And it's only if it becomes critical that we're put into a room in segregation. And... I suppose in some ways I was lucky that it was never deemed that critical. How 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 long did you serve in the end, Cookie? And when were you released and how long have you been out now? And And how did your release come about? Because, you know, people suspect that those who continuously maintain their innocence, especially a lifer who has to go in front of a parole board and then be released on licence, which is in existence for the rest of your life, which means you can be brought back to prison. How did your release come about um, in the end? I had a 
parole hearing. Actually, let me go further back than that. I was due a parole hearing after nine years. And the prison I was in then, they decided not to even apply for it because I'd done none of what they call offending behaviour work. Offending behaviour work is courses that you do to address your offending behaviour. I don't have offending behaviour because I'm innocent. But they want you to do things like anger management or victim empathy and things like that. And if you haven't committed a crime, how are you meant to engage with those? So I chose very early on not to do any offending behaviour work because I'm not, I haven't offended. Um, so at the nine year point, they decided not to apply for parole because I hadn't done any of the courses and that was a requirement at that point. Um, by the time I finally had my parole, after 14 years, um, they decided I'd used my time productively in prison by studying. Um, I wasn't the kind of prisoner that was constantly in trouble. So that goes in your favour. It means that you're able to follow rules. And they agreed to release me. By that point, I'd already been going out on day release anyway. And I'd had a couple of overnights at a probation hostel, what's called approved premises. And the plan was, when I was released, I would go to those same premises for a couple of months to get me help to reintegrate fully back into society. What about your, your kids? Because when you were locked up, they were two and four years old, or, or, or maybe a year older if the trial took that long. So they would have been, what, 18, 16 by the time you got out. Did you, A, have a relationship with your kids whilst you were in prison beyond photographs? And um, did that continue when you get out of prison if it did exist? Because I have other children and they were minors under 18 at the time that my son died, social services were involved in the case. Social services decided that I was allowed one phone call a month to my children, seven o'clock on a Sunday, and I could write to them once every two months. I could see them twice a year. That was it. My daughter chose to go into army cadets and then onto the army. She was advised that if she maintained contact with me as a convicted prisoner, it would impact on her army career. So she made the choice not to be involved with me. Her brother, he stayed in touch with me until a few months ago. But I understand that there are other things going on in his life at the moment. So he's got enough to deal with at the moment. I can't imagine what it's like being in prison for all that time for a crime you say you didn't commit, the murder of one child. Your other children have been taken away from you as a result. You've had to endure all that during those 14 years, come out the other end, and all that is broken. It can't be fixed. There's nowhere or anyone that can fix what's going on in your life. But you are at that point now where you're out, you're living your life, but you still maintain your innocence. Sorry, I don't believe that you live your life when you've been wrongly convicted. You exist. You get through each day. You can't live. You can't enjoy things. You can't. Nothing is normal. And you are constantly frustrated. 
you know, because no amount of looking is going to materialise the answers straight away. And even if you have what you believe are answers, you've still got to try and get it back into court. So you can't live a life like people imagine others to live because the wrongful conviction is still there. It's still present. You've still got that to deal with. How do you deal with that now? What are you doing now to try and take on what happened to you, if at all? I don't know if I will ever manage to take on what happened to me, what I've gone through. It's not so much me that I'm bothered about. I'm bothered about my children. You know, my middle child, my eldest boy, he was three on a prison visit. Me and his dad had decided we would tell the children that some people believed I'd hurt their brother and that we were trying to sort things. Um, but social services had another view and social services spoke to my children about things. And my three-year-old son sat on my lap at the end of a visit and he said to me, Mummy, why did you kill his brother's name? He said, um, why didn't you love him enough? Do you love me enough? That means social services put the idea into my three-year-old boy's head that if he wasn't loved enough, he'd be killed. No three-year-old should have that in his head. No three-year-old should be told that their mother killed their brother because she didn't love him enough. Even if you believe I am guilty, you don't put that on a three-year-old. Where's he meant to go with that? I've never been bothered about what my wrongful conviction does to me. Not an issue for me. It's an issue for my kids. My dead son needs to be recognised for the wonderful child that he was. He needs to be recognised for how much he was loved and how much joy he brought me. And he's not. He's classed as a murder victim. That's not my son. My other two children need, they need peace. And I don't believe they have that. There are niggling questions in the backs of their heads. I don't talk to my daughter, but um, one of my sisters got in touch with me on um, WhatsApp about another issue, and she'd been in touch with my daughter, so mentioned a bit. So yes, I know my children have questions. They're not at peace with things. Have you ever been able to sit down and explain to them your version of events? No. You've never had a face-to-face -face or a conversation where you've said to them, oh, yes, I was convicted and found guilty, but that's not what happened. You've never had that opportunity. You have to bear in mind that when my children were coming in for visits, they were coming with a social worker who had already told them her version. My children need to trust that social worker. Because what if they are having problems that they can't take to their dad or their new mum? Where else are they meant to go? They need to have a strong relationship with that social worker. I'm not going to con contradict that social worker. Not when my children are that young. They were too young to take all that on board. Um, they know that I have always maintained innocence. I have told them that and I've told them that if they have any questions at all, they can ask. If they want to have the conversations about things, let me know. You know, but they've chosen not to. I can't force it on them. 
How do you deal with the stigma of your conviction now on the outside? Because I, I can imagine some of the conversations you have with people you meet for the first time who have no idea about your, your background, you know, how those conversations become quite tricky. Um, for different reasons, you, you know, it might be that they're talking about the last 14 years or so. And do, do you openly tell people that you were in prison for 14 years for something you claim you didn't do? Do you skirt around the conversation? I mean, how do you deal with the stigma of being convicted of killing your own child and still don't have your name cleared or your conviction quashed? I have a policy where I won't lie. So if they ask me a question, I'll get an answer. And if they don't like the answer, they can ask another question. If they need me to explain things, I'll do that. I'm not going to hide from what I was convicted of. I'm not. Because my son deserves justice. And I can't get that if I'm hiding. You know, I will, I will speak about my case to anyone that's prepared to listen. And how do I know that the next person I meet that is talking and asks what I've been doing, how do I know they're not going to be the one that can help? So I just answer the questions. What does second chance mean to you in the sense that, that we're talking in the context? Do you want a second chance to prove that you didn't do what you were convicted of? Do you want to... I mean, what does it mean to you? You're very articulate, Cookie. You explain to me how and what a second chance means for both you and, and your son that died. I want a second chance to find out why my son died. That's it. Clearing my name, yes, it will have an impact on me. Yes, it will make my life easier. Yes, it means I can have more choices of which career I go into. But... More important than that is my son. I need to know why he died. I need to know that it's not some genetic fault that is going to affect my other children. I need to know that... I need to know where it went wrong for my boy. And it's happened in other cases, hasn't it? I mean, there have been cases similar to yours. In fact, I read about one particular case where a woman, just a few hours after you was convicted, was acquitted in the appeal court um, for a very similar type of case. I mean, I don't know whether they call it cop death or they call it something else these days, but I think it was Angela Cannons or something. I, I can't remember the name. Um is is that is that what we're talking about a similar type of scenario here where eventually people who have been convicted of allegedly killing their children are then found to have not done the suffocation or the asphyxiation that it was a medical or a pathologist mistake well there's a lot of other issues in my case um my case and the angela canning's case there are differences i accept that when, the, when Angela Canning's case was heard, there was a new ruling brought out and under that law, it meant that my case, the Attorney General reviewed my case. Attorney General, top of the legal system, reviewed my case, felt that my case needed to go to the Court of Appeal as unsafe. The Court of Appeal turned around and said, conviction stands. So the three judges who are lower than the Attorney General have more power. Which in itself just, it's like, well, where do you go then? Um, so that one is 
one of the issues you have to deal with in my, in my case. And then... It's... There's things like, it was agreed at trial that the first post-mortem was not an adequate post-mortem. Now, that tells you, bear in mind that some of the medical evidence can only be taken at the first post-mortem. And it was a faulty post-mortem. How have they got a leg to stand on? There were tests that should have been done that weren't done. It's too late to do those tests a week later. My son's eyeballs, I'm, I've had to deal with these, so it's easier for me to talk about now. My son's eyeballs should have been removed the day he died. And they should have been checked for burst blood vessels. My son's eyeballs weren't taken out for six days. And by which, by which time they started to deteriorate. So his eyeballs weren't taken out complete anyway. So couldn't be examined adequately. And that's just one aspect. But for the court itself at my trial to agree that the first post-mortem was not adequate. I don't understand how anything else is even considered. Because at that first post-mortem, we lost evidence that could potentially find out the reason my son died. But do you think that there are scientific developments in the world today that may be able to get the answers that you seek to clear your name? My son was cremated 10 years after he died. When you have a cremation or a burial from a person that has gone through post-mortem, the samples that are used for slides and things like that are not included in the coffin. They're thrown out with clinical waste. Um, as it turns out, we have found a laboratory that has a tiny, tiny sample for my son. And we are hoping to be able to get further testing done. But it is only a tiny sample and not enough for more than one test. So we have to choose which test we believe is most appropriate. But if things had been done right at the first post-mortem, I wouldn't need to do the test now. What's your future look like? If you're talking about this afternoon, I, I can tell you. If you're talking about next week, I can't. Because I don't know what my future holds. I don't know where it's going. I don't know if I'll ever clear my name. I know that I intend to keep fighting to clear my name and finding out why my son died. I want the answers, but it is hard. And how many times do you ask a question before you think, okay, I need to find a different question? Or you think, maybe I'm just not asking the right person. Who else can I ask? And one question can take up the whole of your life if you let it. So you have to choose your questions carefully and research where you ask and who you ask and how you ask. And I'm lucky in that I've got a very good legal team, incredibly good legal team that do a lot of question asking. <laughs> so they take a lot of the burden. Apart from that, my life is just trying to get through each day. The weight of what you've been through, not just the wrongful conviction, but what you've experienced while you've been in prison. Not only firsthand, but things that you've seen and witnessed, um, things you've heard. You still have to deal with all of that. So you do have post-traumatic stress disorder. And it, it's, where do you go to for help with that? And you have to deal with that to be able to move forward in any, to any extent. There is no mental health support 
Um, you can find organisations that offer it for ex-prisoners or ex-offenders, but I'm not an offender. I'm not going to a service for ex-offenders. And the NHS is limited. I've been out two and a half years. I still haven't got mental health support. I've been asking for two and a half years. I know I have severe post-traumatic stress disorder. I know I have flashbacks. I have nightmares. I have disturbed sleep. I have days where I cannot find the energy to even get myself out of my bed. I have days where I don't want to come out of my house. I have days where I can't even get myself out of the bedroom. I just shut myself in there and hide because I can't face the world and everything out there. And it's stupid things sometimes. You go to a park or you walk through the supermarket and there's a child crying and the parent is just ignoring them. And it's like, I would give half my soul. I'd give my whole soul to hear my son cry again and to be able to comfort him. And at the same time as having all of those kind of feelings, I don't allow myself to get angry because I don't think it will achieve anything. So it's hard. I know that, I don't want to go into too much detail, but one of the pathologists involved in my case was working on another case at the time of my trial and gave contradictory evidence in the two cases. And we've not been able to get that to court, but he obviously lied to one court or the other. So which one is valid? Which lot of evidence is valid? The one he gave in mine or the one he gave in the other court? Even that, we can't get answered. And everybody assumes that I'm going to be angry at the pathologist that decided it was murder. They assume that I'm going to be angry at people that did post-mortems because of what they did to my son. Um, they assume I'm going to be angry at the NHS for telling me my son was okay, or that I'm going to be angry at the police for taking my other two children away. I'm not, because it won't help any. It won't achieve anything. Anger's not going to achieve anything. Angry individuals won't get me answers. I can be angry at the system, because the system as a whole is failing, but there's no point being angry at individuals. So what am I meant to do? with the mixed emotions within me if I don't have mental health support. I don't have family I can turn to. Where do you go with it? Do you believe that you yourself have been given a second chance? Although your life sounds very depressing and challenging, do you think that you've been given a second chance to live your life? No, because I don't think you can live your life when you've got this over you. I see it as a second chance to find out what happened to my son and why he died and I hope it's a second chance to eventually reconnect with my other children you know I tell myself that once I found out why my son died once I've cleared my name my older children might reconnect my family might reconnect so it's a second chance at rebuilding my family but there's not the time or space for a second chance to rebuild me yet. Do you work? Do you Are you in a relationship? Are you able to live normally? 
notwithstanding all the experience and the post-traumatic stress that you're challenging, you've obviously got to get on with your life. You've got to socialise. Although I hear what you say, that you often shut yourself in your bedroom. You can't leave the room. Um, you have mountains to climb. So how do you do that? For one reason or another, uh, medical conditions, I don't react emotionally as most people do. So um, if you think of a physical pain, if you break your hand, it's going to hurt. The degree of hurt most people would feel, I wouldn't feel. And then if you transfer that to a psychological state, the things that you would expect to make a person cry or expect to make a person angry, they don't have the same impact on me because for health reasons, I have difficulty expressing emotions to an extent so and even recognizing them a lot of the time um i think i spent too much of my life with the wall up um and you ask about working i'm not i'm not classed as well enough to work because of my mental health at the moment being so bad and my physical health quite bad at the moment as well so i'm classed as not well enough to work I've studied online so that I am qualified to work. Um, I'm qualified to work from home if I can find anyone that will give me a job. But um, who wants to employ a lifer on life license? They ask you your name, you tell them straight away, they're going to look, they're going to want to know. I've actually legally changed my name because the name I was convicted under was very different to the one I have. Um, and I was concerned that it would stick too clearly in people's memories. And I had hoped that my release would be a second chance to have a life. When a woman, even a man, I suppose, but a woman in particular, because they say it's different, is convicted of killing their own child, guilty or not guilty, but let's assume for a moment... Um, that people believe that somebody who's found guilty is guilty, that you maintain your innocence because you can't come to terms with the fact that you did something that is looked upon in such a dark way by society. How could a woman who gave birth to this beautiful being take the life of that child very soon after? Um, some people accept it and say mental illness, post-traumatic stress or PMT or whatever it is. What do you say to those people, Cookie, who sort of say you've just never been able to come to terms with the crime you committed and so you maintain your innocence because it's easier to do that than it is to accept the horrible thing you've been accused of doing? Having done 14 years in prison, I know that if you are convicted of a crime involving a minor, a child, a baby, and you admit guilt, you are treated much, much better. If I'd admitted guilt in prison, I wouldn't have suffered most of the abuse I had in prison. I wouldn't have suffered quite so severely with my contact with my children. You know, I would have, if I'd admitted guilt, there were so many more options open to me if I'd admitted guilt. Admitting guilt is the easier option. It's the, by far the easiest thing to do. 
You admit guilt, you do the courses they want you to do, you get out on your first parole. You maintain innocence, you don't do the courses, you're waiting a long time for a parole hearing and then it's potluck. You're waiting a long time to get moved through the prison system because you're deemed as not ready. If I'd admitted guilt, I would have been out a couple of years beforehand. I would have done my tariff and got out because I would have done all the courses that they wanted me to do. I wouldn't have suffered the degree of assault I had in prison from the other prisoners and I wouldn't have suffered the amount of psychological and mental abuse that I had from staff. My life would have been a lot easier if I were guilty. You know, there are days where you sit there on your prison bed and you try to rehearse admitting guilt to see if you could say it and if you could tell that lie and go along with it just to make your life easier. My son deserves better than that. Yes, my life would have been easier if I'd admitted guilt, but it would have been a lie and my son deserves better. I'm not lying to make things easier for myself. I'm not doing it. I need what is best for my boys and my other two. And whatever abuse and hardship I get from that, so be it. My kids come first. My life would have been a, a lot easier if I were guilty. All too often, people assume that when somebody is convicted that they are guilty. Not everyone is guilty. Um, and some people are guilty, but not guilty of the offence they've been convicted of. There is no black and white in the justice system. Having said that, there is also no equality in the justice system. All prisoners are meant to be treated the same. They're not. The level of abuse that goes on in the prison system from prison staff. And if you're abused by a member of staff in any way, you have nowhere to take it. So that just adds to what you're dealing with. And you learn to bottle up. You learn to not show emotions. So yes, you are going to... The regular population are going to come across people who admit guilt or maintain innocence who do not respond emotionally the way they're expected to respond. And that's because of what they've had to endure. You know, it doesn't mean that we don't feel. I mean, I try not to show emotions a lot of the time. But I do have days where I will just curl up on the corner of my sofa, sob my heart out for an hour and then get up and scrub the kitchen to distract myself. But I try not to let people see me cry because people don't know how to handle it. People give you lip service. They say, oh, I feel your pain. I understand what you're going through. I hope they can't feel my pain and frustration because to feel my pain and frustration, they have to have been through what I've been through and what I'm going through. You can't feel somebody else's pain. But people don't know what else to say. Have you been able to grieve? I mean, all this seems to have happened in such a short space of time and before you know it, you're, you're in prison serving a life sentence for the murder of your child and you're protesting your innocence whilst you're in prison. So have you been able to grieve for the loss of your 12-week-old baby? I don't believe that I have grieved yet I don't believe I will be able to grieve until I've got the answers um I think when I do grieve I will have a complete meltdown and 
I can't do that yet. I can't allow myself to grieve while there's all these answers. I'm, I would be grieving for a loss without knowing the reasons for the loss. I mean, it's difficult to get to know what a 12-week-year-old baby is like, but, but how would you describe his personality, his character, what he looked like? My son, very different to his brother and sister. Um, he had a gingerish hair that was constantly sticking up. Didn't matter how much you wet it and tried to brush it down, it would stick up like a Mohican. Um, very loving, constantly holding fingers, very happy sitting on people's laps and having hugs off countless aunties. Um, he could be completely at peace and happy. And as soon as he wet his nappy, he would turn purple with rage. This he'd, is a he'd, week yeah, yeah, purple with rage. He'd go from completely calm to furious at a wet nappy in a split second. And it... In some ways, it was almost comical at how quickly he could respond to things like that. And watching him and his brother and sister as well, um, they each had their own jobs with him to get them involved with him. So one of them had the job of always getting his dummy for him. Um, another one always got the pseudocreme when we did nappies. And that was their role. Nobody else was allowed that role. And um, to see the older two arguing over who was giving the dummy to the baby because it was one's job and not the other's, but the other one wanted to do it. Um, and even though he was sitting there waiting for his dummy, he just started laughing at them. You know, things like that. It's Some days I can still feel his warmth against my shoulder and I can still smell him, which is comforting some days. People would think you make a very good argument and I just hope that you get the second chance to um, to find out what happened to your son by, you know, the support you need to get the experts to come in and do what needs to be done, something that's not been done for the last 16, 17 years almost. So thank you very much for giving us your time today. Thank you for the opportunity. If you enjoyed listening to this episode and want to hear more, Please subscribe to be notified when new episodes are posted and leave a comment with your thoughts, suggestions and ideas. This podcast was sponsored by String Boutique Management Consultancy, produced by Your Vision Media Limited, original music by J. Rowe Productions, design work by Studio Minerva and myself, Raphael Rowe. up what was that boring no flavor that was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week kiki palmer here and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free hello fresh jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. now that's music to my mouth hello fresh let's get this dinner party started discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com when you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. 
seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.